Hey, Galatians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning, uh, and we're continuing in our series, No Other Gospel. We'll get to the history, the background, some of the things that really illuminate this passage. Today we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 21. 11 through 21, two very kind of distinct things that happen. One is Paul's interaction with Peter. The second thing is his description and ultimately the implications of that action and what it revealed. Two big things we're going to see today in this text. Two big things. Remembering the gospel is everything. Remembering the gospel is everything. And this is the second one. We are justified by faith. We're justified by faith. Let's look at this together. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, says this. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For first certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. When they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Together we say, thanks be to God. I want you to think about a scenario when someone you've watched, someone you've seen, has caved under pressure. And in light of recent events, I'm not talking about Auburn, all right? Think about when you, personally perhaps, you caved under pressure. You gave in, you shrunk back. In essence, you did, in so many ways, you became someone that you weren't. Look, I think a number of us have experienced opportunities this, for this to happen in life, and some of us have taken up that opportunity, unfortunately. Times when you're in a conversation, when someone is being marginalized, someone is being attacked, and you don't stand up. Times when you're with a group of people, and all of a sudden, you kind of get invited to the cool table, and now your friend group shifts, these people that you once cared for and you watched care for you, now they don't really matter as much because you've kind of moved to a different place. I think we all have experiences like that. And we're not proud of them. 
If you're really thinking about that moment in your life or series of moments, you'd likely do this. You look back to that moment, you think about it, and then you regret what you did. It's a very natural thing, but here's what is the reality. What you did is only the symptom of what you actually believed. What you did in that moment is ultimately not the fullness of the problem. The core lies in this, that you forgot who you were. That you forgot the truth. This is what Peter experiences ultimately as Paul comes to describe this circumstance. Now, Paul has been talking in these first two chapters about these incredible things as he writes this book to this group of churches in this area called Galatia. He's describing to them with with deep detail not only the source of the gospel, that, that all the good news that they have has come from God himself in Jesus Christ, not only that the gospel is fully sufficient, that everything that Christ has done in his life and his death and his resurrection is the point of all things, not only that, but ultimately that there is nothing more than that. There is, in Paul's words, no other gospel. There's no other good news to turn to. So why is Paul saying this? Why is he describing these events that take place, these stories in his life, these things that happen, this fight, this confrontation ultimately with he and Peter? Why is he so charged to say these things? Because he is watching people all around him and he's seen firsthand people shrink back. People take a step back. People forget who they are. This is an issue that's going on not only with inside the church of Galatia, but in Antioch and all types of other places. Because there are these people who are coming in that Paul references in this passage These people that in this passage are described as men from James, but they're Judaizers. They are people who are in the churches, people from a Jewish heritage that are saying, believe in Jesus, yes, trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, yes, but that's not enough. You've also got to be circumcised. You've got to obey particular rules. There are things that you must do. To them, those two things... Faith and ultimately obedience to the law went hand in hand. Paul works in this moment, specifically in these verses, to help teach us two paramount things. Two things that are bedrocks that we cannot abandon. Paul wants these believers that existed across the world that you and I know... 2,000 years ago, time and space, he shares with us today, by the power of the Spirit, the same thing that he shared with them, and it's this. You cannot forget the gospel. You have to remember the gospel. The gospel is everything. And he tells us what this good news, this gospel is in Jesus, that we're justified by faith. Look into verse 11, and you're going to see the culmination of what happens. Paul kind of starts with the end here, and this is what he says. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch. Now, Peter has come to Antioch to minister the gospel, specifically to those with Jewish background. Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Peter stood condemned. What does this mean? 
Who's he condemned by? What is he, what is he con- condemned in light of? Look down in verses 12 through 14, and you're going to see the scenario as Paul briefly, but in these few words, really expansively describes what happened and why it was so important for him to come face to face with Peter and tell him that he's wrong. And that ultimately, he's not living a truthful life. Look at verse 12. It says, For before certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So a couple of things here. One, Peter is eating with people who are not of a Jewish faith, not of a Jewish background, folks that didn't have a life of old covenant experience. Folks that were irreligious by all accounts. And now these people have trusted in, they put their faith in Christ. They've been reconciled to God by Jesus' work, his life, his death, his resurrection. And now Peter, who does have an old covenant background, who is religious, is eating with them. He's spending time with them. He's connecting with them. He is at the lunch table with them, truly. The people who, who... quite honestly, are not at the cool table. Peter is over there eating with them, helping them understand that they're accepted in Christ. But then something happens. These people come, these Judaizers come, these men from James, they come while he's eating with the Gentiles. And his behavior starts to change. Now, one of the unique things about the way we read, and specifically how the English language is going to translate Greek, we're going to look at verse 12, and we're going to look like all of these things happened immediately. So before these guys came, he's eating with the Gentiles. They come, and ultimately, he draws back. He separates himself. In those few words, it feels like that happens instantaneously, but those words for drew back and separated are actually, in the Greek language, they're imperfect. And that means this. It kind of is an indication of the fact that this isn't something that happened instantaneously. It didn't take place in one moment. It happened over a period of time. The shrinking back... The separating of oneself often takes place over a period of time. I think we can recognize this with people's behavior. When they fail to remember who they are, quite often gradually they move to a place and you get to see them and and they don't even recognize themselves. There's this incredible film and I don't know how it didn't win awards because it's a masterpiece in this whole thing. Um, it's called Mean Girls. Anybody ever seen this? All right. I mean, I think there are people in this room that still raise their hand and say they're personally victimized by Regina George. But here, here's what happens in Mean Girls. There's this young girl whose family comes from Africa. She goes to school this new school walks into high school, and you and look, you guys know what it's like. Look, I, I would be scared to walk into your high school, all right? That's a scary thing to go into a new place. You walk into high school, and you, you guys know the fear, the trepidation that comes with the moment, the kind of the eyes that are on you as a new person. This young girl named Katie walks into this school, and over the course of the film, you get to understand she goes from this table of folks that are loving, sweet people that she cares about and realize they care about her, and all of a sudden she gets invited to sit at the cool table, and she takes the opportunity. And for the next few minutes, that obviously the Academy didn't watch or it would have won those awards, 
you see her life transform and develop, and she becomes this person that she doesn't even recognize. Now, is that because she didn't sit with some people at a table? No. That was the implication of it. That was what happened as a result of it. What got her there is that she did not remember who she was. And this is what's happening with Peter. Over this period of time, out of fear of the circumcision party, he's forgotten who he is. So who is Peter? He's the rock on on which Christ builds his church? Absolutely. Is he the one that, that in, the, in the middle of the gospel stories, you look back into Mark chapter 8, at the, at the middle of this first gospel that we that, that historically dated, the first gospel that we see, is he the one that says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. To whom shall we go? You have the words of life. That Peter is not the Peter that this text depicts. Why? Peter's forgotten the gospel. He's forgotten that because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and because of his, the faith that he has in Jesus, he's forgotten that that's where his righteousness comes from. That's where his love comes from. That's where his acceptance comes from. All of his life is found not in what he's done for himself, but what Christ has done for him, and he doesn't remember it. Paul uses so much in the New Testament, in a lot of his writings, this very judicial language. This language that is courtroom language, law language, right? Law, transgressing, all of these kind of things, the language of being justified. As Paul describes these events and he gives this depiction of what Peter has done, look at, look at what Peter is doing. Look into verse 12 and you see he fears the circumcision party. And these aren't people that could really impose anything upon him. Truly. And yet, he fears them. Now, I want you to think about how absolutely crazy this is. This is who Peter is. Peter is accepted. He is loved. He is justified. He has right relationship with the God of the universe. His verdict is that he's justified. He's innocent. He's free in every way imaginable. And he takes that and he says, I want to go to another courtroom and I want to ask these guys over here if they'll accept me. This is wild. The God of the universe loves him, accepts him. He's justified before God, the creator of heaven and earth. And he's like, I want another jury, and I want the jury to be these people that are like me. And that's what you and I do every day when we forget the gospel. When we forget that we are justified by faith. That we are in Christ. That we have union with Christ. That we are actually, truly, in a familial way that is real. And it is mystical, but it's not metaphorical. We are sons and daughters of God. Peter forgets it. And he lets others 
be his judge. Look at verse 13. It says this, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So here's the interesting thing. Not only does Peter say, I'd like to receive judgment from people around me, failed, flawed, broken humans. I'd like to receive their acceptance. I'd like to receive their love. Not only does he receive their judgment, but he begins to pass judgment on others and teach others to judge. This is what's happening with Barnabas being led astray by their hypocrisy. The rest of these people, it says Jews, but these are Jewish Christians now. People who believe in Jesus from a Jewish heritage, they acted hypocritically. Acted is a really poignant way to describe what it means to be hypocritical. Because ultimately, when we look back to the origin of this word, what Paul is saying and what he's doing here, this word hypocrite ultimately comes from the old world language of putting on a mask. Of truly transforming in such a way that one would be unrecognizable. And in this moment, that's who Peter is and that's who these believers are looking like. They don't look like people who trust in what God has done for them. They look like people that say, we got to do all the right things and then God will love us. And Paul says, this is not the way. Look into verse 14. When I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... This is Paul describing his opposition to Peter. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, you live like a Gentile, and you don't live like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, we live in a day and age where quite often we let our keyboards do the talking instead of our mouths, right? We're disappointed with plenty of people. And we'll let them know it, but we'll never do it to their face because we're cowards. Paul teaches us in this moment how we confront others. And it's just like this. It's face to face. And it's not insulting his character. He's being rational with him. He's saying, look, this is the truth and you know the truth. Don't live like this. Don't go down this path. What's the antidote to this? How do you get to a place where you don't do this? Where you don't try to justify yourself by the things that you do? You don't try to find ultimately identity in the things that you have. This is what Peter is dealing with here. In this moment, he's with a group of people that are haves and have nots. And there are people that have this identity and this Jewish heritage and this religious background. They're religious people. They look holy by all accounts. And yet they're asking people to ultimately revert to things that are not what God says is obedience to him truly because of what Christ has done. And then you've got these people that are just irreligious they hear about the good news of the gospel. They're changed. They're transformed completely. And now these people are being led down a path. How do you get to a place where you protect yourself from this? You remember the gospel. You remember the gospel because this whole story is Peter forgetting it. Peter forgetting the fact that he has standing that's right before God. 
Peter forgetting the fact that people are made right with God through what Christ has done, not what they do. Peter's forgetting that he's a son of God. Peter's forgetting that he is loved, that he's accepted, that he's justified. And instead, he is believing the lies of others that said, you have to do this as well. You can believe in Jesus, but you got to be like us. you got to do this thing. Paul says, no. And he explains what it means to experience and live in this gospel. Look at verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Paul is saying, look, i got the same background you do. I've got everything that you have, the same pedigree and even more. Look back into Philippians and what we've read recently. You can see that Paul's background of Jew. No one has a Jewish history, has a religious life like Paul has. And he says, look, that's who we are. We've experienced the covenant. We're not Gentile sinners. We're not people who come up from an irreligious background. He says this, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. I come from this place. If anybody ought to fall susceptible to this, it's me, Paul says. I ought to be the one that would be in this place. And he says, but we even know, we recognize that it's not what we do that saves us. It's what's been done for us. We are justified only through faith in Jesus Christ. The reformer, sola fide, all of this comes from this place. That in order to be justified, we must have faith in Christ. Because in the works of the law, no one will be justified. Here's what Paul is getting to. The this, this synthetic thing that he's saying here in this moment is that your natural inclination is to please God. And to do the things that you want to get to God. But because we're rebellious, we're sinners, we turn, we run from God. And then we ultimately get to that place where we see what we really want, which is to please ourselves, will never satisfy the works of the law. Will never be good enough. The, the, the most loving, the Best thing I could tell you today, and some of you, I don't know you, and so you may say, I don't really like this guy now. You're just not good enough. You just can't do it. You can't keep the law. You can't be obedient. You've harmed others. You've led others astray. And that sounds hopeless, but ultimately, hear this, that hopelessness is the doorway to hope. Because when you recognize that, when you see that, when you come to the end of yourself, you recognize that there is no hope in the law, and what Christ has done is truly good news. This is what happens as a result of the gospel. Paul says this in 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Here's what Paul's saying. Christ doesn't serve sin. He doesn't serve 
the way that we would live in such a way where he would honor sin, and instead it's incumbent upon us to trust in him, to rest in him for what he's done, and instead not rebuild what we tore down, this law that reveals our sin but will not relieve us from our sin. This law that points us to Jesus but in itself is not the point. This law that reveals to us our sin, our brokenness, that helps us understand who God is and who we are. And ultimately, the deep need that we have. And this is what Paul says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. He's going to take this up in Romans 6, and you're going to see in that passage about baptism that we're dead That baptism is not this pretty imagery. This is, I'm dying with Christ. My death is bound to his death. And his resurrection life is where my life comes from. This is what Paul is saying. And he describes it in this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. That old him is gone. That old self is gone. That old way of living to seek to earn the favor of God is gone. Why? He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What is Paul saying? This is how he describes it. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The life I live in the flesh. And he's concerned, like really concerned to say this. And he uses a very specific word. Because there's, in the Greek, there's different words for stuff like there is in English, right? He doesn't say body. He doesn't just say body here. He's really concerned, it seems, to say flesh. This is what Paul means. He means that he believes this down to a cellular level. He means that through the skin and through the cartilage and the bone and the flesh that enraptures all of the, all of his all of who he is, everything. He says this, the life I live, I live all of that, everything that I am by faith in what Jesus has done. Not what he could do for himself. But for what Jesus has done, what's the evidence of this? This is the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. This is the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. And he says this, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, hear this, then Christ died for no purpose. If righteousness comes through the way you and I live and the things that we do, what does Christ die for? This is challenging, but I think it's true. Every day, I'm pursuing ways, means, of shoring up, of marking out, of carving out my identity. All along the way, I'm forgetting the gospel. 
forgetting what Christ has done for me, seeking to earn God's favor, longing to be loved, longing to be accepted. And when I do that, I'm living as if Christ died for nothing. I'm not experiencing, I'm not enjoying, I'm not embracing the beauty, the wonder of the fact that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. That I'm his, and that he's mine, that I have union with him. We are justified by faith. What Jesus Christ has done. God is calling us in this little local body, in this little community, to be gospel people. To be people to whom the gospel means everything. That's what he's calling all of us to do, all believers, to rest in the effectual work of what Christ has done. Brother and sister, Christ did not die without purpose. He died that you might be redeemed, that you might be accepted, that you might be loved, that you wouldn't find your hope in the people you sit with at lunch, that you wouldn't find your joy in however many zeros are in your bank account. That your life wouldn't be marked by the things that you've done. Because there's more. And you and I get to embrace everything that Christ has done for us. We are justified by faith. This is the most hopeful place in the world to be. Truly. You don't wake up in the morning... And figure out who you have to be that day. What do I have to do to earn someone's favor? What do I have to do to be be looked on in this way? The God of the universe loves you. And accepts you. You're his. He's made you his. And he's yours. So why in the world would I fear what others think of me. Remembering the gospel is everything for us. And to truly remember the gospel means to remember that we are justified only by faith. Luther would put it this way, union with Christ delivers me from the demands of the law. So then what's the role of the law? What are the the things that we're called to do in obedience? If I don't obey to get to God, I trust in what Christ has done, what what happens with the law? Well, we obey out of that faith. We don't obey the law to earn favor with God. God has given us life in Christ, and now we're free to go live and fulfill and do the things that Jesus has called us to do only because he's done it for us. We get to go love people. We get to go live out the gospel. We're free. Paul is so concerned for people to understand the power in this. Here's Peter in this moment. Pushing others down to lift himself up. Someone much smarter than me says it this way. We are not made holy by declaring others unholy. You're not made holy 
by comparing yourself to your brother or sister and seeing that you're doing a little bit better than they are. We're all broken. We're all in need. You want to know life? You want to experience true freedom? The kind of freedom that would let you wake up tomorrow morning not concerned with yourself? The kind of freedom that because you remember the gospel so deeply, you can forget who you are and go love your neighbor and go care about others and go love your family and, and, and be a good employee and care for others in unimaginable ways. How do you get to that place? It's not a billion steps. It starts right here. Remember the gospel. Remember the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for you. There's this pastor or writer, his name is Matt Smethurst, and he says it this way. I think this is the most poignant description of what a Christian is. And this is what Paul is trying to say when he tells us that we are justified by faith. A Christian is someone whose greatest accomplishment is something they didn't do. Your greatest accomplishment is something you didn't do. It's what Christ has done for you. This is where your hope is found. Not in being better, but in believing. And resting in what Jesus has done. So here's a question for us. Where do we look for love and acceptance? Where do we find it? And I'm not just talking about in the grand scheme. I'm talking about moment by moment in your daily life. Is it in what Christ has done? Or is it from others? If we really believe this, how does this change the way we view others? What does our next day look like? What does the next hour look like? What does our next conversation look like? We have the opportunity to rest in what Christ has done for us. Could we be people today that just remember two things? The very gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, and the fact that we are justified by grace through faith alone. There is nothing else it is the place where all of our hope is found. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, Father, we praise you because every good and perfect thing comes from you. Every single thing is a gift. And Father, would you cause us today, as people in a distracted world and age, people who are being told from every possible form of media what we should be, who we ought to be, what we ought to look like, what we ought to wear, what we should have who we should associate ourselves with. Father, would you let all of those things fade away in light of the gospel? Would you cause us to remember 
who you are and what you have done for us. And this morning, Father, would you cause us to recognize that our experience in our relationship to what you've done is truly only by faith and nothing else. And let that hope sink deep into our hearts. Pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. As we prepare to worship and respond, you're going to have the opportunity um, after the service to, to meet with pastors, elders, ask questions. If you're in a place where you are beginning to believe the gospel or you just need prayer for something going on in your life, uh, our pastors and elders will be here at the front of the room and we would love uh, to counsel you, to just walk with you. Um, really special Sunday. Uh, and so as we prepare uh, to worship and, and sing together, two families are joining our church today. Uh, one, uh, the Fieldings. Can't let them join until Chris finishes playing bass, though. That's important. All right. And also the Gibsons. And, and the Gibsons are also joining. And their son, Jack, is joining uh, through baptism this morning. So I'm going to be back there with that family and get Jack ready for baptism. And we're going to get to come out here and celebrate that together as well. So if you will stand and sing, praise God for his goodness. <laughs> 